Good morning. Well, that's only the second time that somebody has wept introducing me. But I think it's the first time it was in a positive sense. Thank you, Dad. Now, now I'm being serious. Uh, it's been a real joy to have these six weeks with you. <clears throat> okay, our scripture reading is chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. It's page 1775. If you have an NIV a pew Bible in front of you, I am reading from the ESV. First Corinthians chapter four. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. 
For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I'll never forget the day when I received hard criticism from one of my, uh, in one of my seminary classes, one of my professors uh, called out a mistake that I had made in one of my papers, and he wanted to let everybody know it. And so everybody, all my peers uh, were hearing about this uh, conceptual error that I'd gotten wrong. It wasn't a grammatical error. Um, and, and, and so I was, I was gutted. I, I, I felt so ashamed. And I remember seeking the wise counsel of my father and told him about what happened. And I told him, I, I don't think I'm cut out for this. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think this ministry thing is for me. I felt really inadequate. I felt really incapable. And I thought that he would put his arm around me and, and tell me that everything was going to be okay. And based on your muffled laughter, you know that that's not exactly what happened. He, he didn't. He was, he was actually, I asked his permission for this story, so that's okay. He, he was almost upset with me. He couldn't believe my reaction to the situation. And, and then do you know what he did? He, he, he planted my feet in my identity in Christ. He, he was reminding me of my calling, reminding me that life isn't about being easy, that, that it would require striving in my vocation and in, in pastoral ministry that it wasn't for the faint of heart or for those who were not called. And so he reminded me of my calling, the one that he, he had val not validated but, but had witnessed and, and one that I knew myself was true, but I was acting immature. And then he tells me of the challenges that he faced, as I'm sure many parents have done with their children. But, you know, studying in a premier seminary, uh, only having about a year of English under his belt, coming from a completely different culture, no immediate family support, and, and all of that was like a glass of cold water down my back. It's like, oh, man, you're right. Because it knocked me out of my feeling sorry for myself. And it gave me a, a new perspective. Now, maybe some of you have been recipients of that kind of tough love. Uh, a, a hard truth. Now, maybe some of you have dealt that out to others. Well, that's a little bit of what Paul is doing with the Corinthians here in chapter 4, a father instructing his children. Children who have rebelled, children who have been wayward, children who are not acting 
wisely, with, with godly wisdom, children who have forgotten who they are and whose they are, but also children who are loved dearly, children who God desires to grow, children for whom Christ died for them, children who have the Spirit of God in them, but they need a word from their spiritual father. Praise God for our spiritual mothers and fathers. They're, they're, they're staying with us. They're, they're being patient with us. They're striving. They're being honest with us. They're, they're loving us and caring deeply for us, desiring for us to grow spiritually. Now, I want us to look at chapter 4, the way that a parent would talk to a child. The way that a parent would talk to a child, remembering that those of us in Christ are God's children. And we come together in a, in a, with a, a posture of humility and not arrogance. And so we, we're, we're laying our weapons down and we're saying, we know that this is a word for us and we are asking that the Spirit would give us tender hearts to receive this word. The first thing Paul does in this section is, in a sense, defend himself. He's defending himself. He's, he's explaining his role and who he is accountable to, right? Just like a parent comes to a child and explains their role, so the child has clarity on why the parent is doing what they're doing. You know, when I discipline my children, I explain to them my role as a parent. So, so it's not just, I'm not just disciplining you because I feel like it. It's not arbitrary. No, there's a, there's a point and a purpose behind it. It's that I love you and I, I desire what's best for you and it's my job to instruct you. I have a role and this is part of that role, is discipline. And so Paul says in verse 1, this is how you should regard us. As servants of Christ and, and stewards of the, of the mysteries of God. It's not that people determine uh, Paul's role or, or his identity. The, the, the Corinthians may think a, a number of things about Paul. But, but what they think doesn't change the reality of, of who Paul is and what he's been called to. That role was a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, that word servant here, it means subordinates, right? It, it, it's serving their master. This is not the Greek word diakonoi from where we get the word deacon, where it's like a table server. No, this is, this is the Greek word huperetes. This is the under rower of a ship. In the, in the world's eyes, this is the lowest of lowest positions. Therefore, leaders are not worthy of, of, of ultimate loyalty or attachment as we've been seeing in the previous weeks. It, it's not about them because they are subsidiary to another. They are, they are beneath another. They are under another. And that who they're under is under Christ, who is worthy. Now, the word steward here has the idea of an estate manager. So while they are of lowly position, 
They have been called to an important task. He serves and he has some authority to, to execute his mission. Think of uh, a, a head butler in a home uh, from, you know, maybe the shows that were popular for a period of time like Downton Abbey, right? Mr. Carson, he, he had a, a level of responsibility and, and he could execute a number of tasks uh, that were in line with what his master's will was. He has authority, and he executes that for his master's good. And in all, Paul uses four terms for leaders in the church. He calls, it, calls them servants in chapter 3, verse 5. He says subordinates or assistants in chapter 4, verse 1, referring to their secondary position to before Christ and the church. He says fellow workers in chapter 3, verse 9, which is their relationship with one another. And steward or manager, which brings out that the, the minister's ultimate responsibility is to, to God himself. And, and so the, the, the goal, the responsibility is to dispense the gospel in all of its fullness. That's the mysteries that they are to make known, that they were mysteries in the Old Testament, that, that Christ had not yet been revealed, but now he has been revealed. And the job of the, the leader, the pastor, the teacher in the church is to reveal that to, to teach what has taken place, that Christ has come, that he has died for the ungodly, that people may put their faith and trust in him. That's the task. It's, it, it has been revealed, and now the teacher, the preacher, is teaching it to the people that they would see that the revelation has come. So again, imagine a father explaining to the child the role that God has given him as the head of the family. And this gives clarity to the child that God is the ultimate authority. But he puts parents in the lives of children to serve them and lead them. That's the role of leaders in the church, to serve and lead. And we just heard about that as we think as the new members have come forward. We're, we're all serving, but the leaders in the church are called to a higher level of serving. Then Paul says... It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It is the faithfulness of the steward to God that is ultimately what is judged. Was the steward or the manager faithful to his master, making known the gospel to those that were under his care? That's what we talked about last week with the building of gold and silver and precious stones. Were you making known the gospel to the people under your care? Because the Corinthians wanted to judge Paul and the leaders in the Corinthian church under a different criteria. They were wanting to look at external traits like, were they eloquent with words? Did they use a high level of rhetoric? Were they impressive in the way that they presented themselves? Did they have an impressive, impressive personal presence? That would be building with hay and straw. Those things burn up. They're not of highest importance. Now, let me say this. It's not like I'm, I just, uh, I'm just down there praying Monday through Saturday, and then I get up here, and I'm like, okay, now I'm just going to do it. No, I work really, really hard at, at, at putting a sermon together, at, at putting logical sequences together, and, and putting illustrative points together, right? There, there's a lot of labor and, and effort that goes into being a good communicator. 
But I also work really hard, if not harder, to make sure that what I say is right and true and faithful to God's word. Because that is what I will ultimately be judged by. Listen, I could spend, I could spend all days just working on my communication skills, trying to just be a better speech maker, and I could be faithless to the text that we're trying to look at. But God will not judge me for how effective I am as a communicator. God will judge me by my faithfulness to his gospel. That's why so many of you have come up and, and, and spoken to me in person or written me emails or texts and, and told me how much this series has meant to you personally or as a family. That is because, beloved, it is faithful to the text. And that's not me bragging. That's, that's just the effort that's been put in and the Spirit has used that for His glory. It's not just my thoughts on a topic. Well, you know, here's what I think about unity. And I read the passage and then I just tell you what I think. There are plenty of churches that will do that, but, but I don't take a verse and make it whatever I want to say. I, I have to keep it. I have to, I have to pay attention to what Paul's emphasizing, to what he's drawing attention to. I, I have to think about how the original audience would interpret and, and receive what Paul says, and then I have to make that fit into our cultural setting here. It, and this comes straight from the Scriptures. And Paul is saying... It, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you or by, by some human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. Amen. Beloved, this goes for all of us. This goes for all of us. We can't stick our finger in the air and, and see where, you know, where the winds are blowing and then try and be there from a cultural perspective. That, that, that's not how this works. We must remain faithful to what we have been called to as Christians. And the Corinthians, were, they're, they're judging Paul. They say that he's really harsh in his letters, but he's, he's really weak in person. He's not as eloquent as Apollos. He, he's not as, uh, as uh, powerful as, as Peter. You know, they're making all these judgments about him. So much so that if Paul's identity was not rooted and grounded deeply in Christ, he would be tossed about by everyone's opinions of him. Think about this in your own lives. Think about this in your own lives. Do you, do you measure yourself by human standards? Is my house up to the standards of our peers? Are we keeping up with the Joneses? Are our children measuring up to, to our, our, our peers' children? Are they in the right programs and sports? Are they in the right schools? Are our vacations lining up? Does our social media profile uh, equal up? Beloved, do you know what that sort of thinking does to us, this, this comparison back and forth? Do you know what it does to us? It isolates us. It creates a spirit of jealousy and rivalry inside us, even, even if we don't recognize it at, 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 its, at its initiation. It brings in division. 
when we play that comparison game, we need to know what we have been called to, and we need to know what it looks like to be faithful to Christ, our head, and put all of that comparison in the rubbish bin. And Paul's point here is that we need to consider how we judge others, particularly leaders. Now, I don't say that because I just, hey, don't judge me. Um, Go easy on me. No, 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 because, because judgment is God's role. And when we want to be judges of everything, judges of individuals, judges of families, of church ministries, we usurp that responsibility that belongs to God. He is the judge. And when we want to judge everything and everyone, we put ourselves in that position. We don't know the heart of another person. I don't know what's going on in your mind. We, we, we did that several weeks ago when we talked about the Spirit. I can't assume I know what your motivations are. And our standards of judging are completely different from God's standards of judgment. Now, if someone is in leadership and they're being unfaithful to the Word of God, th- that's a different story. But what Paul is talking about is he's talking about uh, how the church is judging the leaders who were being faithful to the word of God. You know, Apollos had a wonderful sermon. It made sense to me. And, and you know, Paul's was okay. You know, they, these are the judgments that aren't as helpful. Because remember, it's about our faithfulness to the gospel. And so Paul defends himself. Then Paul gets a little bit in our grill. A little bit closer. And this is where we get some tough love. Something I'm grateful for. Just when dad told me what I needed to hear, what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear. And here is Paul, and he's using irony to to pit two things against one another. The pride of the Corinthians and the weakness of Paul. Let's look at the pride of the Corinthians first. Paul has been somewhat indirect up to this point in the first uh, three chapters. He's been a little vague, a little general in, in, in addressing the issues of the church. Now, I've been giving you more context and detail uh, so that we can fill out and, and understand why Paul is saying what he's saying and doing. But for the Corinthians, I mean, he's about to take the gloves off. But notice how Paul has been so gentle with them up to this point, taking the time to remind them that you have the mind of Christ, walking them through the role of the Trinity in their lives, taking the time to to reroute them in the assurance of the good news that their identity is in Christ. But now that he has done that, He needs to have some real talk. Now, as he says, he's writing to them not to shame them, but to warn them, to admonish them, to to urge them. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. In other words, we don't boast in ourselves, Apollos and I, but we serve. 
And scripture teaches this theme of, of boasting not in self, not in man, but only in God. We need to learn to live according to scripture and, and to stay away from, from the jealousies and the, uh, the arrogant rivalries that, that will prop up, crop up. And how do you do that? You do that by living according to scripture that you learn to see that it is God who is working all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes, that the people who bless us are a gift from God, that all we have, those in leadership who serve, those who are great in our midst, and those who are of little account, those who are strong and those who are weak, they are all gifts to the church. In Australia, we... Uh, when Lindsay and I first got there, there was a, a man, I think he was in about his 60s, but he was only about three feet tall, and he had some developmental issues. Um, so he was very difficult to understand. So he had an Australian accent, and then he had like speech impediments on top of that. And I remember when I first got there, and he was speaking to one of the pastors standing next to me, and then he said something to me, and I was like, hmm, What? I didn't, and they said, oh, he's asking you this. And I thought, oh, man, I'm never going to understand this guy. Well, fast forward to the end of our time there, I understood him better than any of the other ones. Any of, you know, all the other pastors were saying, what did he say again? And I explained to them. Now, his name was Steve, and he's gone to be with the Lord since then. But Steve was small in stature. He, he couldn't hold a, a, a real full-time job. He had mental uh, issues that kept him in sort of the mind of a, a young child. And yet, if you talk to him about the things of the Lord, I was so blessed by that. He loved his Lord, even in his simple mind. And it was such a blessing to me to see this man who just wanted to serve Jesus and serve his church. And so Steve might not have stood out. He wasn't going to lead any Bible studies. He wasn't going to hold an evangelistic campaign. He wasn't going to preach a sermon. He wasn't going to do any of that stuff. But you know what? He was a blessing to me. He was a gift to our church, and people loved him. And so Paul asks these three rhetorical questions. Who, what, why? For who sees anything different in you? Or another translation says, who regards you as superior? Or another translation, who makes you different from anyone else? What is he asking here? Well, there's two ways to take it. There's a positive sense and a negative sense. In the positive sense, he's saying, who made you what you are? On a negative sense, it's who do you think you are anyway? Right? John Chrysostom, early church father, fourth century a fantastic preacher. This is what he wrote about this passage. Where is the evidence that you are worthy of being praised? Why? Has any judgment taken place? Any inquiry proceeded? Any essay? Any severe testing? No, you cannot say it. And if men cast their votes, their judgment is not upright. But let us suppose that you really are worthy of praise and have indeed the gracious gift, and that the judgment of men is not corrupt. Yet not even in this case would it be right 
to be high-minded. For you have nothing of yourself that you did not receive from God. Not earned, received. Beloved, the the fact that they are of Christ, remember we looked at that at the end of chapter 3 last week, that they are of Christ, that's the basis for Paul's high regard for them. They are of Christ, so they're of high standing. But they're beginning to think that they are who they are by their own efforts. And they're beginning to define themselves by their intellectual astuteness and their high position in society, something my friend Steve wouldn't be a part of. When in reality, they're defined by Christ because they are in Christ, and which is far better than anything of this earthly world that we could think of because this world is passing away. It's much like we do today, is it not? We define people by their work and by their vocation. Oh, you're a doctor. Maybe that's just prospective mothers-in-law. <coughs> oh, you're a nuclear physicist. Not so much when you hear, oh, you're a housewife. Oh, you take care of children. Oh, you're a janitor. Oh, you do security at a place. Sorry, no. I am in Christ. And Christ defines me and my identity, not my vocation, not my last name, not what university I attended or did not attend. For what did you have that you did not receive? Everything is a gift from God, our very lives. And anything that is of this world, whether wisdom or power or strength, will it not pass away? But, beloved, the things of eternal value, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, these are gifts of God in Christ. And in case the Corinthians have missed the point, Paul asks, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? To to take credit for something that is a gift from God is the height of worldliness and arrogance. And it is a foolish act when viewed from the perspective of a crucified Savior. Now, what follows here is really sarcasm. I mean, goodness, Paul. But of course, it's not without a point. He starts with this reminder. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. That's pretty sarcastic. The Corinthians have all that they want. They're fully satisfied. They they, they think of themselves as rich. They think of themselves as kings, kingly. That's the exact same issue that's taking place in the church in Laodicea when Jesus writes to the church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus says to that church, for you say, 
I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. The Corinthians are getting the same rebuke from Paul. They think they have all they need with their wisdom and their rhetoric and their prophets and their sages. They are secure and they are self-sufficient. And in actuality, they're in a very dangerous position. Now, this is typical of a society that's been influenced by Stoic philosophy. And it would be hard in that culture to see that these things don't actually make you rich because it's so embedded in the culture. Just why the gospel pushes aside all the philosophies of the world. They do not make you self-sufficient. Now, is this not also the 21st century American mindset? We work hard, we accumulate wealth, we accumulate possessions, we have become self-sufficient. We've done it. When, again, when I was in Australia, we, we did a, um, a staff retreat, and we went to one of the most beautiful parts of Sydney, the eastern suburbs, and there's a, um, a little area there called Vaucluse, and we went to the Anglican church there, and, um, I mean, it's just stunning. I mean, you look out the windows, and you've got, you know, the, the opera house and the bridge and the whole skyline of Sydney, and you're looking at the ocean. I mean, it's the most unbelievable place you, you, you could imagine. And it is surrounded by huge mansions. And I remember when we were using their facility for our little retreat, and I asked one of the ladies who was working in the church, and I said, how many people attend this church? And she said, 30? Mm, <laughs> I thought, well, this is not a small suburb. This, this is a big area. And I said, why so few? And she said, have you seen this place? These people think they're already in heaven. They live in these massive mansions, and they have so much at their disposal, and they, they're, they're really big on their fitness, and so they have their health, they have wealth. Why would they come here? Why would they come to hear about a Jewish carpenter who died for them? It, you know, it just didn't make sense. There was no need for that for them in their minds. Now, the actual conditions being faced by the apostles are starkly different from the estimations of these immature Corinthians that they're stating. Paul spells this out in 9 through 13. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as least of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger, we thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless, we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we, we endure, when slandered, we entreat, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's not complaining here. This isn't a list of complaints on his behalf. This is teaching. 
He's pointing out that the preaching of the gospel has not brought about fame and success and fortune the way that the world would define fame and success and fortune. In fact, Paul endured a number of horrible things in Ephesus, which is where he was writing from as he's writing to the church in Corinth. And, you know, you can just go and read Acts chapter 19, verses 23 and following to see what he's facing. I've actually stood in that amphitheater in Ephesus where Paul's companions were dragged and interrogated before the entire Colosseum. But this position of weakness and deprivation allows Paul to preach the gospel for what it is, the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Paul cannot trust in his own abilities, which he knows, humanly speaking, are lacking. He has to trust in the power of God. And beloved, that's a good place to be. Now, the number of things that Paul has mentioned that he's had to endure, it's remarkable. He says he feels like an exhibit that's been brought into a grand arena and he's being mocked, and he's being thrown to the wild animals. This would have been a common occurrence, the, the gladiatorial games, uh, you know, the, the bloodshed, the prisoners and the convicts being led, and soon to be the Christians, uh, brought to the arena, thrown to the lions, to the wild animals, and put on display for the whole audience to mock, to laugh at. Paul says, this is how it feels. This is how I feel his gospel is regarded as foolishness. He, he is weak. He is dishonored. And the Corinthians in their worldly wisdom think of themselves as wise and strong and honored because they behave as the pagans of their age. Paul has suffered economic loss. He's hungry He's homeless. He has no material possessions. He's often beaten. He works as hard as humanly possible. He blesses people when they curse him. He endures the persecution of which the Lord told him he would suffer. And he's, when he's slandered, he doesn't return in kind. He says he's swept up like trash, like you would clean up in a neighbor's yard after your dog. He's treated like this because the world wants to be rid of him and his foolish message. Now, think of the gap between how the Corinthians apparently think of themselves, rich and kingly and self-sufficient, and the reality that Paul faced. Persecution, hardship, completely relying on the grace of God could not be more drastic, could not be more stark. But to avoid the plight that Paul is facing, the Corinthians are instead choosing to make peace with the world. Beloved, where do we fall in line with the culture that falls out of line with the gospel? I'm not talking about Christian liberty issues. Where do we fall in line with the culture 
that falls out of line with the gospel? Is it about our efforts to gain control over people and institutions? Is it exhibiting a loveless spirit? We don't care for anyone who we see is beneath us, below us. Is it seeing ourselves as wise in our own eyes? Is it judging things prematurely? Paul is urging them to see things not from a distorted perspective, but from the reality that Paul sees, not just theologically, but in a practical way. How will they get along with each other as a church, as a body? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And this was a major issue for them. Some of them are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Some of them are eating ahead and not even letting some of the people into the, into the home to have a meal with them. This is not the body of Christ. This is not love. This is not care. This is, this is not exhibiting the, the love of Christ for one another. And so he warns them, all while exhorting them to learn about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that comes in by the power of the Holy Spirit through the message of Christ crucified, the message that the pagans think is so offensive. Flattering speech does not bring about the kingdom of God in power. The message of a crucified Savior does. You want to know the solution to all this infighting and, and, and fractious behavior with the Corinthians? It starts and it ends with the cross. Looking at Christ and what he has done. The, the, the message of the cross is the ultimate answer to our deepest issues to everything in life. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Paul defends himself. Then he gives some tough love. And now there's a marked change in his tone in verse 14. Stay with me now. Stay with me. Just as a parent reminds the child of his consistent message, it's an affectionate tone after he has been giving some, some hard, tough, difficult love. Listen, Paul knows these Corinthians. He's been with them for a year and a half with them, eating meals with them, celebrating with them, uh, probably performing marriages, only baptizing a few apparently, but he's been a part of all of this with them. He, he loves them despite their attitude towards him. He's angry with them, but, but his anger will not have the last word. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He doesn't want to shame them. He loves them. But he needs to admonish them because of their immaturity. He doesn't want to leave them where they are, just as a parent needs to teach their child. You don't just hope that they'll figure it out. For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. The, the Corinthians in this culture, they, they had these guardians who were, they were slaves, and they would take the boys and girls to, to, to school and bring them home, and they made sure they did their homework, and they were kind of a little bit of disciplinarian. That was kind of their role, and that's what he's talking about here when he talks about countless guides. So they're understanding what he's referencing there. 
but they only have one father in the faith, which is him. And, and, and Paul was not a stern taskmaster coming to scold them every time they got out of line to make them comply. Rather, he's like a loving father who exercises that firm but loving discipline. He's the first to preach the gospel to them. He's the one that led them to Christ. And so he's calling them to imitate him. Look at the life that I've lived. You know, almost like the, the picture of the, the going into a gladiatorial arena to be mocked. I, I, I've been treated so poorly all this time, but I don't find my identity and my hope in those things. I, I find my hope in Christ. He's not telling them to drop all their factions and then just become followers of Paul, but rather that they would imitate him in making sure that everything they do is in light of the gospel and in light of the age to come. And so they must move on from immaturity, leaving these cultural, ungodly things behind them And because he can't go to Corinth, he he sends Timothy to do exactly that, verse 17. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Timothy is going to to come and and bear witness to the fact that Paul is consistent in his theology, that Paul is teaching the exact same thing in all the other churches, that his focus is on preaching Christ and him crucified. It's just like a parent who has to go to a child and say, I'm not treating your siblings any differently. Yeah, you get that a lot? This is not fair. You did that and not this. He's saying, no, that's not what's happening here. I wouldn't ask anything of them that I wouldn't ask of you. Beloved, this is the consistent message of Paul. This consistent message that should come out of pulpits in churches is the message of Christ and him crucified because it is the hope of the gospel, in the hope of the gospel, that we find peace with God. It, it is in the hope of the gospel that we find we can have peace with one another. It is in the hope of the gospel that we find relationship with God and with fellow man. If we continue to think highly of ourselves, if we judge the preached word based on the wisdom of this world with our itching ears, if we allow ourselves to fall in line with the culture of the day and out of line with the gospel, then we remain spiritual infants and we spread discord and division among the body that will tarnish our testimony, and silence our witness. Well, this is obviously the last of our series, and and I just wonder if any of you at any point in all this series have have felt the point of where you feel disunified or you you don't feel a part of, or or, or perhaps you feel uh, uh, immature in some aspect in in your spiritual walk. I have been challenged by these words of Paul greatly. And listen, if you have felt challenged at any point in any of this series, praise God. We're not here to to shame you. I'm not doing this so that I can say, I knew you were immature. I just needed proof. Beloved, we are here so that you can grow 
But it has to start with you being honest with yourself. If we're not honest with ourselves and honest with one another, then none of this will grow. None of this will develop, and we remain on milk and spiritual infancy. But listen, as you grow, as your faith journey grows and you move from milk to solid food and you're growing in your spiritual depth, so the rest of us grow. We all benefit from this together. We love you and we want to see you grow. We want what is best for you, and what is best for you is to be rooted in Christ, planted, watered by the word, and the servants of the word. Let's pray. Father, so many stones to unturn in this section, and yet, I think we can feel like the Corinthians feel. We, we feel Paul's heart for us, for them. He's not there to, to, to banish them. He's not there to, to be hard for the sake of being hard. He, he's being tough because he wants growth. He wants to see development because that is your plan. That is what you desire So, Father, we're asking that if any of us felt any prompting from the Spirit, that we wouldn't just ignore it and let it pass by, but that we would go and find someone and talk to them because we can't do this by ourselves. We need one another. So, Lord, help us to have someone who we can come to. We know that pastors are available to come and speak, and so, Lord, we're asking that people would make themselves known so that we can journey on this adventure together for your glory and to your praise. For, Lord, we know that you hold us together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.